Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CEDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today is freshly moved head TO Mikey Hollihan. How's it going, buddy? It's been a long time. Yeah, it has been a while. We've both been just super busy with you buying a house, and then I was moving, and then I've also been working on Eminence. That's that <clears throat> side project I've been teasing at for a few times on the podcast, but now everything's up and running. We have our website up. Tickets are for sale. The event's going to be August 27th to the 20th in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the area, it's a little bit outside DC, uh, not DC, outside of Philadelphia. It's going to be at a hotel. And yeah, two, 2K in price support. Payout goes to everyone who makes top 16. And then first place, uh, I believe, gets $800. And yeah, it should be a good time. We're working on vendors right now to make sure that all of you... Uh, lords can get your high-end foils there's going to be reserve lists and we're making sure that the vendors we uh, invite will have all those types of cards because i know that was something you complain at other events where there's not able to get like the high-end foils and stuff that the cdh players really just fiend for as we know oh yeah you know i love my foils i uh big foil guy myself i was even in the 60 card formats and it's so much easier to justify in like the singleton spaces because like come on i only need one even though my deck is twice the size or whatever and it still goes all the way back and so you know you spend more money than you do it feels easier because you only need one you don't have to buy play sets of anything but <laughs> So, if people wanted to buy tickets to this Eminence event, which I, for the record, you know, we, we just kicked it off right off the bat. I am planning on attending. I do already have a ticket. Uh, we can put a link in the show notes for those of you that want to show up to the Eminence tournament. This is run by Mikey, and, you know, I select few others whom I trust immensely. You can find them all on the Eminence Twitter which you can plug that as well here. I think this is just a great space for you to plug that because we've been we've been kind of teasing it on the miscast for a while. And, you know, I know you've put a lot of your time, effort, and energy into this. Like, while I've been doing my home stuff and my renovations and all that nonsense, you've been just going turbo on this. So plug away, plug yeah. away. This is your space. Yeah, so you can follow us on Twitter. It's at EminenceMTG. Uh, Eminence is spelled just like the mechanic. It's almost like we got that from somewhere and it's almost like I'm in love with Anala. You know, <laughs> crazy how that works. Really weird. Uh, and then our website is eminence.events. And if you go there, you can go to our Punt City page as well as our About page. You can learn more about our staff and you can buy your tickets right there and registration and everything. It's all going to be run through there. Right now, we're not um, accepting deck submissions, also just because we know the event's far out and no one has that planned yet. So that is just something that we're going to open up. Probably in the next like week or two, we're just working out our RM. But yeah, everything's going to be seamless. We're doing it all through our website instead of Discord. Uh, we also have some places you can contact us if you have any questions. But, but yeah, um, that's about it. Like all chugging along, we already have sold over fifty seats out of our hundred twenty-eight that are available. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty a lot good for pre-reg. Magic players normal, uh, I guess, stereotypically very bad about planning. <laughs> they show up to things last minute and just try to do stuff on site. That's just that's just the magic player way. And so having that much stuff pre-sold is really, really awesome. And like, it's going to be my first CDH right. tournament, so I'm stoked. And tickets only went on sale this past Friday. So the fact that we've already sold enough seats to run in the event is pretty exciting. You know, it's not like we're we're scrambling here. Like, oh, no, we're going to have enough to fire. Like, and if we I'm not saying we want to stop here, but we're close to 60. Like, that's enough for a pretty solid event. And we have plenty of time to keep shilling and keep trying to sell tickets so i feel like we're in a really good spot yeah i agree i agree very excited so 
you know, you want to check that out, check out the show notes below. Should have a link directly to buy tickets if there are any remaining. So that is, of course, while supplies last. And uh, yeah, if you want to come check us out, both members of the Miscast will be at that tournament. And speaking of, uh, another update we got is the tokens. You can see the lovely art that Inkland Customs made for us for our podcast that appears on the album cover for our podcast now. So wherever you're watching the podcast, it should have that propagated. You should see the lovely artwork she did. We have miscast tokens. Um, and you can come find us, you know, whatever. Get those signed if you want. If you don't want them signed, you just want a nice, sweet proxy for, you know, the card miscast in your deck, or you just want a token for any random thing. We have tokens now. Come find us. Come get a token at whatever events we will be at. And uh, I'm going to do my best... Uh, to retweet and post about the events that each of us will be at individually and together from the miscast Twitter as well. So hopefully you'll be able to get that kind of information from our Twitter presence. And um, if not, of course, I'm telling you right now, we're going to be at the Eminence event that's linked in the uh, show notes below. So you want to come find us? You know, this is our attempt at making, you know, whatever, any kind of public relations between the podcast and our listeners. This is something that uh, is just kind of a side project for both Mikey and I, which is why, you know, we're maybe a little less consistent than some of the podcasts and stuff like that. But those of you that stick through it and, you know, waited a month for our next episode or whatever, we really appreciate y'all and being patient with us. And of course, once again, you can come find us and get some sweet tokens wherever we end up. So with that, so for Eminent, you also get the chance to meet, Honor a third member of the miscast, Hal, my secretary, he'll be there. And he will also have some tokens to give out. And yeah, like, you know, come, come say hi to him. He he doesn't do the best job, but, you know, love him anyways. Yeah, definitely. Hal, somebody that, you know, apparently very important for the miscast as far as secretary duties. We, we actually, apparently there's a hierarchy. I don't know if we talked about this yet, but, you know, there's Alex was talking about being somewhere in the, in the chain of command of secretaries for the miscast. We got a whole... A whole bureaucracy going here and I, i'm not sure i'm even i'm not sure i even like it you know it started off with me making how my secretary and then for some reason that's a very coveted role which i don't understand so, <laughs> seems like the busy work. understudy is alex and then i think alex has an understudy and then somewhere down the line is Hal's wife michaela so i don't know <laughs> sure <laughs> fair fair enough we got a whole a whole chain of command but you know for those very special listeners of this podcast you can skip much of the chain of command by just reaching out to us on Twitter. And that usually works just fine. <laughs> oh, well, whatever. We've been busy, obviously. We know we just talked about a lot of stuff going on. I, I've been doing a ton of home renovations. Might post some before and after pics at some point on my personal Twitter, or personal Facebook, somewhere. Uh, once everything's said and done. But doing a lot of renovation work. Excited about that. Excited to have that all wrapped up and have a nice new shiny office to be recording podcasts and doing work and stuff from. But... Other than that, house stuff's been super awesome. Super excited for the imminent stuff you put together. Big things happening for us in the year 2022. All that said, have you been working on anything in your time? Playing any CDH decks? Working on any new cards? New Capenna has had a bigger impact than I think both of us really initially thought it was going to on CDH. Yeah, I haven't been playing as much just because I've been so tied up with um, all the imminent stuff. Uh, but Still been thinking about things. I've been tweaking Armix Chrome a little bit. I know that Drake would love to hear this. I'm down to 26 lands now. Took out City of Traders. <laughs> I uh, hate made, you made so a much. Swaps. I made, made a couple swaps here and there. Uh, other than that, I've been working on Grixis Krark a bit. And uh, our friend Takato put together his own variant because we were talking about it a lot. Like our 
two decks are very similar. I did a compare last night, and I think they were like seven cards off. But I think it's a cool concept, and I think it has a lot of potential. For those of you who don't know, like the, the joke of Grixis Kark is that Demonic Consultation becomes a one-card win, because if you win the flip, you name Oracle, get the copy, so Oracle gets in your hand, and then you exile the rest of your deck, and then the same thing works with Tainted Pack. And a lot of people, when they build Kark decks, this is something I've been getting some flack from the more Kark enthusiasts, is that I'm not trying to lean into Kark really hard, and I'm not trying to run a bunch of doublers, I'm not trying to run Stormkill, I'm just trying to focus on the fact that he doubles my cantrips, doubles my rituals, and then I'm really high on sacrifice effects, so I'm on an offering. Rexian Tower, Sacrifice, Diabolic Intent, all these types of things. So my idea is double my cantrips where I can. If I lose, I lose. That's fine. You know, this is trying to be, view it more as like a Roger Silas type of Grixis build. Like I'm trying to go all in. If I die, I die. But when I get to do cool things, I get to do cool things. I make a bunch of mana, draw a bunch of cards, and then I remove him, remove Kark before I cast my Nas or my Peter or whatever my payoff might be. And that was kind of the mentality going into the deck. Takato's played, I think, a couple games on it. And it did the thing that we wanted to do. I think he won one, lost one, or he might. I think it might have just been one game, and he won it. But it, it did exactly what we both planned. It was drew a bunch of cards, filtered his hand. He didn't get to win that turn, and then he removed his Kark, and then he dropped Nas and had a bunch of counter magic. And yeah, that's that was, sick. That's a cool concept. I don't know how great it is, but I, like I said, it's more in that Roger Silas vein where you're just trying to go burr, ignore what people are doing, and then I just think Kark enables a lot of cool things because now if you win a dark red flip, that's six mana that's potential for a Nas and with the consult idea even so the baseline say that you get it perfect it's win the game for four mana so it's kind of like Anala obviously a little bit more pip intensive but even if you lose a flip five mana or six mana win the game with one card not bad so that's kind of the mentality and I think it's a cool idea that's a little underexplored so it's something I want to look more into I've just been so preoccupied with eminence but I'm glad one else in our group picked it up because now I'll have someone to bounce ideas off of and when they test I can test like you know, they'll test five cards, I test five cards, and that's just where I think a lot of the magic happens with deck building. Yeah, yeah, you definitely want multiple people iterating and stuff like that. And obviously you have, like, a good game plan, like, a good theory around the deck. Like, you come into it with, like, a commander-centric plan. You have another commander for colors or whatever. Um, and I, I do really appreciate these approaches, especially as the CDH metagame develops. I mean, we can talk probably at least half a podcast on Kark alone if we really extend it, but I kind of want to spend a little bit of time because I think it ties into our today's topic actually fairly well too, talking about Kark specifically here because it just seems like a good opportunity. Um, I played a fair bit of Thrasios Kark, uh, which is a high tide deck. And like, it's kind of the same idea, but it's more splitting the difference. Like when you think about the best or whatever, at least the most prevalent Krark deck, you're talking about Krark Sakashima, where the whole idea is get a pile of Krarks and then just like, you know, start storming off with that. You're like very all in on doing Krark stuff. If Krark stuff can't happen, your deck's just kind of, it doesn't really function, you know, it's just like very much limping across the finish line for whatever games you're going to try to win without a single Krark in play. Um, but you're talking about like a, a Grixis deck that can still do the Turbonaz stuff, but like also just has this baked in like one card win condition with your commander, all of which is like cards under, you know, two CMC or less. I think that's, I think that's really powerful. I think that's something worth exploring. And um, based on my experience, having played a little bit of the Kark Sakashima myself, but playing against it a lot and playing a fair bit of the Thrasios Kark stuff, I think that's a good idea. I think not enough people see Kark in a temporary sense. A lot of people see that card as just being an all-in build around, which obviously, you know, does work. And so, like, that is founded. Like, people that think that way think so because Kark's like, she was a good deck. Like, people play the deck, it's really good. 
But as the metagame develops, I think it should be developing towards more removal spells. I talk about this a lot on different podcast episodes on Twitter. I think we should see a trend of people shifting more towards Terminates and Wrath of Gods uh, and away from Negates. And because I think people have gone way too hard on Negates because they're scared of Ad Nauseam, just like absolutely terrified of Ad Nauseam decks. Whereas they should be more scared of the Croc Thrasioses and that kind of stuff that just accumulates a bunch of creatures on board that go unchecked turn after turn after turn. So I kind of think that's the way the metagame should be developing. And if it does, a Grixis setup like what you're describing is going to be a lot better in the face of those kinds of deck building uh, considerations than Croc Sakashima is going to be, right? Because like if there's a bunch of Terminates, like Croc Sakashima is just like dead in the water a lot of the time. Whereas... Your deck's just like literally just trying to play it and then cast one spell that's one mana and just be like, okay, like that's all I needed it for. You can go ahead and kill it. I don't care. Like, I don't care. I actually kind of don't really even want to keep it around. So I think there's some really good theory there. And obviously you get the good color combinations and a lot of stuff going on. It's a deck I may have to take a little bit of a look at if uh, you kind of move on to other things. Yeah, it's definitely something I want to look into. And the big thing I've been getting from people who play more Kark is like, well, if you're playing Kark and not leaning into it, then why aren't you just playing Silas Roger and... Like I said, I, I think this is why I want to run in, like, doubling cantrips. Like, I'm really high on cantrips in the deck just to help dig since the commander slot card advantage. And mm-hmm. just the idea of console being a one-card win, that's what I'm trying to lean into. So, we'll see. Yeah, that's, that's the whole reason, it? right? Like, you gave a yeah. reason. Like, why not Roger Silas? Well, because neither of those cards double a demonic consultation, you know? Like, there's, like, a very tangible reason. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Like, so far, the theory crafting, I think, is there. It, it does well in gold fishing, and like I said, Takato busted it out last night, and it did exactly what we wanted. Like, there was a game, like, it didn't look like he was necessarily going to win, but after you filter your hand with, like, six Faithless Lootings, <laughs> win that turn because you've exhausted your mana, but I think you have the cards you need to win at that point. It was like right. six at least live the turn or whatever. You brainstorm, so he untapped and was just like, Maz, and people were like, Here's a counter spell. He's like, nope. Here's another counter spell. Nope. Good. <laughs> okay, then. All right, we're good. We'll go ahead and call it there. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. awesome. I'm glad you got multiple people looking at it and working on it. Um, and like I said, I think it's a really cool idea. So I'm definitely interested in updates. And of course, any and all updates we can also talk about on the podcast, too. So ton of interesting stuff to talk about. Stuff I'm definitely interested in hearing back from. My working on list is a lot more boring. I... Uh, I've kind of been talking about these kinds of decks for a long time because I'm really trying to nail down some deck lists I think are optimal. And to call something optimal is, of course, kind of disingenuous because, you know, there's all kinds of considerations with CDH being as wide open as it is. And, you know, people talk about, you know, metagame decisions all the time, even, you know, maybe a little bit more than they should. They use <laughs> metagame as a justification for playing a lot of really bad cards, I think, um, over some much more powerful options. But, that said, it it does exist. Like, metagame considerations are real. And uh, a great example is what I just talked about. Like, as I play decks more and more, I just want more creature removal because I think creatures are, are becoming more prevalent and more powerful in the format because people aren't playing answers to them. So, I think, you know, that that is a real tangible shift I've noticed in the metagame at large, or at least as at large as it can be. Of course, I don't have insights into every single individual pocket of metagame, but you know, I have access to a lot of the the big tournament stuff that is going on. I have access to a lot of the discords and stuff like that. I, I have I, what I'd like to think is a significant portion of uh, the content creators and some of the more prominent players uh, of CDH. So all that said, I think there is a real metagame shift. I think a lot of times people use this justification for playing too many bad cards, but trying to follow those trends 
pick up on them and adjust accordingly is very much part of the competitive process for me. You know, if you take a look at how I prepare for tournaments for 60 card formats, it's very much that. Like I play a lot of moto leagues. I am consuming content basically 24-7, reading articles, doing all that stuff, really trying to get my finger on the pulse for what the metagame is right now and where it's going by the time I'll be playing a tournament. And so I'm kind of beginning that process. We talked about Eminence being my first tournament that I'm going to be participating in. Well, now it's kind of time for me to lock down and actually start taking deck building seriously. Like I do a lot of clowning around with different decks just to try stuff, see what's fun, see what I like. But now suddenly I, I have a goal and it's, you know, it's to win this tournament. So I'm going to start playing decks that I think are objectively the most powerful while I have time to pick stuff up. You know, I have months to prepare. So really, I, I think it's within my range to pick up and get familiar with to the point of confidence, basically any deck. Like I'm not really concerned about oh, you know, it would take, I need too many reps to play Anala, or I need too many reps to play Gitrog. Like, I'm not really concerned about that. I have more than enough time, in my opinion, to get the reps I need, get consume the content I need, and all that stuff. So, naturally, I'm starting, putting my money where my mouth is, I'm starting with Blue Farm. And I've been putting quite a few reps in with Blue Farm, and I've come to some interesting conclusions. And I think that's part of what we're going to be talking about in this podcast today. So I'm not going to go into too much of that at length. But some interesting stuff, you know, I obviously have noticed that I want more sweepers. But I'm actually lower on specifically Terminates. I was trying like Path to Exile for a while. And I think I want something like Toxic Deluge more than Path to Exile. And I also noticed with Blue Farm, a lot of times I think the deck gets misbuilt to lean harder into combat. And I think you just don't need to do that at all. I think a lot of times Timna and Krom on their own do a good job s supplying you with card advantage. And even though Timna does, whatever, get incrementally better having cards that are better in combat, things like Sarah Ascendant and, in my case, um, what's the card? Professional Facebreaker. I think those cards are, like, going a little too hard on it. Like, I think just playing good creatures, things like we're talking Dranath Magistry, we're talking Dothy Voidwalker, we're talking... Uh, Ledger Shredder, that's a card we're going to be talking about quite a bit today, I think. Um, playing just these evasive cards that do more stuff, but are just like happen to be creatures, I think is more than enough. Like you'll have random mopey attackers to, you know, beat up people with. And a lot of times things like Ledger Shredder or whatever also happen to have flying. Dothy Voidwalker has shadow. Like you can, if you need cards, you can get them. But Timna plus Krom, you know, is going to provide enough cards just basically on their own. Like if those are your only two creatures in play, from my experience, you don't need to go harder on that because you're not going to go bigger than any of the creature decks will in combat. But you are, you do still want to be able to get some triggers from Temna. But Krom having flying and being huge is more than enough. So just put, play your Krom first, play your Temna after, and you're going to have more than enough cards. So don't go so hard on the, the card advantage stuff. I mean, or with creatures, like trying to get attackers in, like things like Grim Hireling and all that. I, ugh, ugh, absolutely not. So I've kind of noticed a little bit of that. And it's funny to say coming from a spot where it's like, okay, creatures are really good right now, you know, maybe disproportionately so. And I'm over here like cut some of the creatures because you just don't need them. I guess that actually does kind of make sense, right? Like if your creatures aren't dying, you don't need more creatures. You just need, you know, actual real spells. Your creatures are going to live and they're going to connect. And I think like we are get keep getting like these better feature value engines and such. It's just part of the reason why it's become so good when we're getting Creatures are just better. Like, for instance, my Armix Chrom list for a while was on, like, four or five creatures, and one of those was Simeon Spirit Guide, so that doesn't even count. And now it's up yeah. to, like, 11 or 12. As we've gotten stuff like Facebreaker and things along those lines, Ledger Shredder, as Drake has already mentioned. Because I feel like people are starting to lean too far into that. 
I've been with I'm with Drake. Like ever since Grim Hireling came out, I was like, outside Najila, I don't want this card. I was like, this is yeah. four mana. That is a lot. Like, I get it. It makes a lot of treasures. It's removal on a stick, whatever. Like the fact that I think people are so high on it is just because they're not running removal on their deck in the first place, and you're casting this clunky CMC creature that doesn't really do that much. Like, I don't know. Mana's usually not the issue, especially in these four color decks that are trying to run it. And something that we're talking about with Facebreaker a little bit, and we were talking about it with my roommate last night, Steve. You feel the best text on Facebreaker is the fact that it has menace. Like, yeah. obviously, you can dig, it makes treasures, it does a lot of stuff, but you're still paying three mana for this. And we feel like the best thing about it is that it's a menace attacker for Timna. Like, there's better attackers for Timna I, for cheaper. <laughs> we could do better than that. Yeah, exactly. And then it's also just like you see people running like Sarah's Ascendant and Loyal Apprentice. And I'm just like, why are we running these cards? Yeah, like, Loyal I, Apprentice, so I can't hate that card more than I do. I, I think that card is so bad. And people just put it in their deck over and over again. Yeah, and like I know so many people who play the card a lot and they swear by it, but it's like I don't I don't get it. Like why you, you it's good Winota. I think it's good there. <laughs> yeah, like that's different though. Like Yeah, Tim obviously. I'm just trying to say like card, it's but... so not good in my opinion in Timna style setups. I think it's just like way, way too hard. Like Timna's good enough on her own. The card's busted for a reason. You don't need other cards to make it more busted. Please just just leave leave your loyal apprentices in the deck box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. And it's like when you have Timna Krom, it's like Krom is a big flyer. I know a lot of people are running Krom and stuff these days, but there's going to be someone at the table not running Krom. Like that is guaranteed basically yeah. one card a combat. And that's like, like fine. Like you can get more. Like Timna sometimes can get in there and get busy, but like realistically, Krom's going to supply enough cards on its own. That's a big, a big talking point about what we're going to be talking about today. And like you just don't need to do the extra work for Timna for like really honestly menial gain given how much mana and time you're investing into it. And that's really how you, how you have to think about these kinds of things is, you know, you are spending a card and like your mana and then it's summoning sick or whatever, unless that has haste, but then you're playing like whatever garbage haste card in order to enable this Timna card that's already good. Like it's already good and you're just investing a bunch of resources to make it minutely better. Like you should instead just be doing something better with your mana. And for, for sure. that reason, I would, like, want to play something like, whatever, like, Painful Truths. Talk about Painful Truths, right? Like, think about Painful Truths versus Professional Facebreaker. If the best thing about Professional Facebreaker is that it gets, you know, uh, it has menace and can just attack through, then, like, from a really diluted, watered-down viewpoint, Painful Truths is, like, a Facebreaker that has haste and gives you two time walks or whatever, you know? Like, you really have to think about... What is the value of the mana you're putting into play in the card advantage you're getting back over time? Now, I understand there's more text on these cards and whatever. Who cares? The point is, like, when you're talking about spending mana to accumulate card advantage, and that's the primary function of something. Obviously, Fresh Ricker can make mana and other stuff, too. Like, you really have to evaluate how powerful that is in conjunction, or, like, in contrast, I'm sorry, with whatever else you could be doing. And, yeah, I think that leads really really well into what we're going to be talking about today because we're specifically going to be talking about evaluating uh card advantage card selection mana usage from like a multiplayer perspective specifically just evaluating cards it's one of the hardest things about magic i think i mean you can just see it every spoiler season right like how many people just completely miss on busted cards and how many people think something is just absolutely busted out of their mind and you know, it's just not good. Like, look at Obnixilis. The new Obnixilis, the three-mana one. Everyone's like, this is the next Oko. This card is unreasonable. So busted. And then it just kind of turns out to be a flop. Whereas I think a lot of people were really low on a card like Ledger Shredder. 
They're like, oh, this card could be good. It might be worth trying. And then now everyone's like, oh, okay, this card's bananas. <laughs> you should be playing this card, right? Yeah, so, like, Omnixus was pre-ordering for, like, 40-plus dollars. Yeah. Ledger Shredder was, like, five, and now it's flipped. <laughs> and that just happens That's time insane. and time and time again. Like, something usually has to be, like, way outside the realm of reasonable. Something like Underworld Breach, right, where everyone's just like, wait, this card looks busted. And everyone's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this card's busted. Like, something has to be just a full-on mistake before... You know, people really get it right. And that's the beauty of, honestly, Wizards of the Coast being good at their jobs. Because, like, a lot of people like to give them hate. But, like, they are good at their jobs. They get people just absolutely just foaming at the mouth over some stuff that's unplayable. And then they sneak a lot of the power into, like, kind of very unassuming cards. And I think that's really, really impressive. And we've seen that the entire time I've been playing, which is, you know, approaching 20 years. Like, it's it's really, really cool. And I, I think that's, like, those are the moments where I'm like, you know, Watsy, they, they do know what they're doing. They don't always get everything right, but it's near impossible too. And it's it's really cool to see that. And it makes evaluating cards really difficult and shows that, you know, the people that work at Watsy are very good at evaluating cards, despite, you know, the general uh, discourse, we'll call it, uh, at the in the internet at large about how bad they are. How did they miss this? Blah, blah, blah. Talk about what the average player misses, right? Like, over and over again. It's like, this thing, this 8-mana thing is unreasonable, so busted. It's like, okay, all it says is 8-mana win the game. There's a hundred other cards that say 8-mana win the game on them. So, like, all this to say, we're going to be talking about evaluating cards, specifically the shift from a 1v1 setting into a multiplayer setting, because I think this is one of the biggest things that players like me are going to fuck up. And we'll, we'll kick this off with a tweet. Like I always like to do. I'm just going to keep doing this until I run out of tweets that I think are fitting for the scenario. But coming off of Command Fest Richmond that happened this weekend, uh, Shivam, I hope I'm saying that right, but member of the Commander's Rule Committee, just absolutely generally fantastic human, uh, tweeted, uh, one of the most interesting things was watching Corey Baumeister and Brad Nelson, very, very good Magic players, if you don't know who they are, uh, delving into EDH for the first time. It's instructive to see them first study the cards from a pro player 1v1 stand and then play them and change their analysis on the fly in free-for-all play. Uh, And from my perspective, as a format steward, they also had really fascinating new player reactions. Brad ran an Urza CDH tier deck and he he was handed and I could see his face and mood change as he played Rhystic Study and figured out what it implied for free-for-all, and get more and more annoyed. And it was his card. He came to the conclusion, many of us do, that the cognitive load of having to continually ask and track it isn't fun, but the reward is so high that you're basically priced into frustration. And finished up by saying, and between the two of them, it was real neat to see them become quickly enlightened to the value of throwaway lines on cards that were meaningless in 1v1 that become monstrous in multiplayer. Things like each opponent and every upkeep. So... I really like highlighting Rhystic Study there because I do think that is one of the biggest ones when you're talking about 1v1 players to multiplayer settings. Like, even me. I came in, you know, obviously I've been turned on to Rhystic Study for years at this point. Like, I get I get this card is really, really powerful. But when I first started five, six years ago in CDH and people started playing the card because it wasn't even accepted as good in CDH, whatever that truly means, when I started playing CDH. We've talked about that before, too. And the card was laughable. It's like it's yeah. too slow. I'm it's like, like yeah, this is three <laughs> mana, and like you could just pay the one, idiot. Like, come on, get out of here. It's so unreliable. But that's just not how games play out at all. 
Like, that's not the texture of the game. That's not what ends up happening. A lot of times you don't really get the option. And it's weird to think about how that could play out because when you're just envisioning from a 1v1 player standpoint how games play out, you being the only other player in a game very much dictate when things happen and when they don't. So you can just always be like, okay, fine, I'll treat it like a uh, sphere of resistance and I'll just always pay the one. But in multiplayer settings, there's more going on here. Like players are going to go for it, maybe try to win, paying for it each time, but you don't have the mana yet. You haven't developed. You're not ready for that and you have to interact with it, but then you can't pay. So like, that's just a really, really diluted example, but there's kinds that kind of stuff happens all the time. And that's not even getting into the players that are just reckless with it and just, oh, well, whatever. I don't care if you draw cards. I'm just going to cast my spells willy-nilly. So like... Gustav. Yeah. I mean, come on. I was thinking it. We love you, Goose, but come on. Come on. You gotta, you gotta pay for some he knows of this it. stuff. He, he missed it. Every time I cast a turn one Rhystic, he's like, are you making me do this again? And I'm like, goose stuff. You don't have to you do don't it. Have I'm gonna to. Do You're it. not required to. <laughs> yeah, but he does it anyway. And it's like, um, the amount of games where me, you, and him are in the, in the table, I do like a turn one Rhystic. It gets back to my turn two and I have 10 cards and you're like, so, um, I'm gonna pick up my cards. Yeah, I think we're good here. I, I don't know if you all really just enjoy winning or trying to play this game but we are dead <laughs> mikey has a hundred thousand cards in hand and you all have like four so i don't care that you have a fierce guardianship i don't care that you have a flusher we're dead can we please just move on to the next game this game is over <laughs> we can play the next four turns but they literally are inconsequential yeah so i, I think rhystic study is a good highlight there and we'll talk about that card a little bit more too but i think there's a lot of aspects to this discussion and it was hard for me in particular. I don't know if it's as hard for you since you've kind of been around me for so long at this point and kind of see my flaws, but it was really hard for me to reconcile a lot of my experiences I've had playing blue farm recently coming from a one V one player format, like perspective where I am much higher on things like cantrips than other people. Like I'm trying to find a reason to put expressive iteration in my decks because I think that card is messed up. And everyone's just like, yeah, no, that card's too slow. It's too bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I, you're right, but it's frustrating that you're right. And I can't really pinpoint why. And I think this podcast is kind of an attempt to, to talk it out with you and you know, kind of share some of my experiences with that. And ahead of this, I actually cut Ponder like just yesterday or whatever from my blue farm deck. And that was like a card that I swore I was never cutting from any kind of fair bluish deck at all. It's like, how could you? I mean, that's unimaginable if you're talking about a, a 1v1 setting where it's like, you know, Ponder is messed up. It's always going to be better than your next worst card, always. So just like play all your cantrips, take the Turbo Xerox approach. It works. Turbo Xerox, like game theory, is good and works and has worked across time in 60 card formats for a reason. And... As it turns out, that ports only really sometimes in CDH. And it, ironically, it ports more to proactive strategies, I think, than reactive strategies. So, yeah, it's it has to do a lot with mana. And we'll get into that a little bit too. But when you are thinking about this in theory, you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, why does no one play Treasure Cruise? Why does no one play Expressive Iteration? You know, why is there very few Ponders and Preordains? Like, these are cards that are just way over the line in 60-card formats and are just not good, not, not even playable in... You have 99 cards to work with or whatever, and they're not even playable in CDH. Like, that's really odd. 
And I think if you told the average, like you told the Brad Nelsons, you told the Corey Baumeisters going in sincerely, that's like, yeah, Treasure Cruise is just not good in CDH. They'd be like, okay, yeah, whatever. You're a scrub. Like, we'll see. I'm going to put this card in my deck. You know, whatever. Ponder. I'm going to put this card in my deck. Look, I'm not a clown. Because that's kind of how I thought. I was like, come on. There's no way Ponder's not playable. You're, you're, come on. And as I played more and more, I have found that, I mean, it's just, it is just worse than the other things you could spend your mana on. Yeah, and the big thing is it being sorcery speed kind of makes it more limited. And also, it's just so weird. Just when your card quality is so high, it's like that. I'd much rather that just be a threat than try to dig, especially when you're only running one-ofs in your deck. And then you also can make the flip side, like, well, you have so many powerful one-ofs in your deck, like, just digging has to be better. But in reality, tapping that one mana can be detrimental because if it whiffs, then now you don't have your dispel up and you didn't hit another piece of interaction or... Things along those lines. Like, you just need cards that are just generically good at all times, other than, like, counter spells and removal, because obviously you need those types of things, and there's going to be times where that dispel is dead, or that removal spell, there's nothing worth removing, whatever. But you need those types of answers in your deck. Now that we're getting things like Ledger Shredder, like, we keep going back to this card, it's just so much better than a Ponder. Like, a Ponder might help you dig four cards deep. A Ledger Shredder lets you fill your graveyard, which is essential to so many strategies these days and it's going to draw you so many cards because if people are casting one spell a turn they're already behind you like that's great i'm yeah if it's a rule law for two mana that's bananas a one-sided rule of law for two mana yeah there's no way that's going to happen like actually yeah i'm not even saying that i get this argument for some people where they're like oh when i see a turn one crom i just don't feed the crom i'm like cool i have five mana turn one turn two and you're not developing yeah you're you're (laughs) under a rule of law that's beating you up for four damage every turn all right we'll see who wins that game (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, I'll take that every time. Like, if you don't want to feed my Crom, dope. I could draw zero cards off Crom, and I will be just as happy with my board state. But somebody else will. That's the problem. It's like, not only are you getting behind, it's kind of the Mystic Remora squeeze, too, where, like, somebody else is going to find a way to, like, sequence their cards to get ahead. So your option is either just sit there and be a sitting duck while two players play the game, or feed feed a card that draws cards and actually get to participate. Hmm. And that's, that's the tension with these kinds of cards, these Ristic Studies, these uh, Croms, these whatever, Asper Sentinels. These are why these things that look like they should not be consistent card advantage are. And I think that leads right into talking about active versus passive card advantage. And what I mean by that is active card advantage and active card selection is cards and abilities where you have to sink your mana into it every time you want some amount of card selection or card advantage out of it. We're talking about cards like Sensei's Divining Top or, um, you know, whatever, Soothsaying's another card selection example. Um, and then, of course, cards like Cantrips, cards like Painful Truce I brought up earlier, cards not played at all in CDH, but is a great example of, you know, whatever, three mana, three cards. You're, and that's active card advantage. Whereas your passive card advantage is your things that are based on triggered abilities. We're talking about Chrom. We're talking about Ristic Study, Mystic Remora, like the the staples of the format. Notice the, the card pool that I've said in the second half is far more prevalent in CDH than the first half. That's not a mystery. Because when you have your opponents that get three turns to your one turn, right? That flips the script on how good these cards with triggered abilities are. When you're talking about, you know, you only get to untap once but three other players that are against you get to untap once each for every single time you untap, your mana is now suddenly worth a lot more than your cards are. And that's a, like, it's not necessarily 
Okay, that, that may be unfair. It may not be worth more than your cards specifically, but the the gap has closed. Like, when you're talking about 1v1, where each player gets to untap once, and you're each drawing only one card a turn, like, your cards are have, like, a, a value that is worth, you know, a certain amount. And your mana has a certain value. The delta between those two is much larger wherever they actually fall you know you can argue about it one way or the other but wherever the the delta actually is the gap is larger than it is in multiplayer where your mana you know and your cards are worth i think uh, a closer amount uh whichever one's you know ahead and as a result i think we see cards like thrasios i think a lot of times we, we've seen people try to adjust to realizing this by playing things like training grounds in order to like kind of make it more aggressive and consistent in order for like uh, for a stream of card advantage but we've seen kind of a decline of Thrasios decks outside of specifically combo setups where you're making infinite mana and drawing your whole deck we haven't really seen the mid-range based Thrasios decks thrive as much as we've seen Krom decks in the last year or two where we talk about the rise of Krom Armix we've talked about Krom Tavesh you know Blue Farm obviously is the the pinnacle example but these kinds of decks that rely on Krom in Grixis-based setups or whatever as a mid-range card advantage engine are consistently ending up with more cards than the Thrasios decks. Yeah, for sure. And that's um, just on the note of like the Thrasios decks that we see working right now. I'm someone who was a big, devout follower of Evolution. And they used to be like, you know, Ian and I, we, we love each other, we respect our deck building decisions, but that used to be like a little ongoing debate between us. Like, which is better, Dawn Waker or Evolution? I don't want to go into the differences here. Even now, I've settled that Dawn Waker is just better. Doing the Thrasios thing and just being like, I just want to activate Thrasios all game isn't good enough. Dawn Waker works because of the density of A plus Bs in that deck that make infinite mana. Exactly. And Thrasios is there sitting pretty in the command zones for one. You hit those A plus Bs, you draw your deck and you win. No, I, I think that's a really good highlight. And I really like that you brought that up because you are somebody that I know put a ton of time into some of these Sands Black. They're Sands Black, right? Thrasios decks? That's correct. Yeah, San, these Sands Black Thrasios decks. And really, I like, honestly put the reps in and contributed to the community quite a bit. And so you have a lot of intimate experience uh, about the difference between the two. And I mean, my game experience has shown lopsidedly that the combo-based Thrasios decks are so much better than trying to play it as a mid-range strategy even playing like thrasios Krark, which is one of my only thrasios decks that i've played um that one is very like it's kind of combo oriented where you make like a, you don't make infinite mana but you make a ton of mana when you're high tiding so like you really only use thrasios even then if you like kind of fizzle but like even if you don't fizzle like there's times where you just like play thrasios and draw a few cards to like make more put more lands into play and all that kind of stuff you don't really use them in order to hold up mana every turn and play this mid-range game, you do actually kind of use him on your combo turns a lot. And if you are using him as a mid-range plan, that's like bad. Like you're really far behind. Whereas and That's I for taxi yeah. matchups where there's rule of laws and stuff in play and then you do sit back and do the Thrasios thing. I think that's where it shines if you play against a lot of taxi decks. Sure. But as we mentioned, we don't really see that much in the meta. And I know that's skewed between different play groups, but looking at tournament results and such, other than Charles, Charles is the big exception here just because he's, He's the mono white guy. He's very, very good at stacks, and he makes sure. it work. Yeah. Don't see a lot of stacks in top sixteens at any of these events. Like they just don't make it through. And it's, I think that's just kind of indicative, also, what we're getting at. That it's just better to have these croms. They're just drawing you cards. Like crom equals another deck. I think is very, very good because you have crom in the command zone drawing you cards, and then you're able to do 
the quote-unquote mid-rangey plan, but at the end of the day, they're all still turbo decks because they have black. Like, as long as you have black in your deck, I feel like you're basically your turbo deck at this point. Yeah. Like, the fact that black you can threaten... Black I think you need blue too. Not, yeah, yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Like, just the fact that if you have black, you're able to threaten turn two, turn three Nas, no matter what. Like, it's not hard to hit five mana in this game. <laughs> yeah. Right, like... None of these decks are going into the game. Like, I'm going to sit down and just grind value. All of them are like, okay, I can grind value if I think this game's going to go long and staxy, but I also can just end this game turn two, turn three with a Nas, a Pita, setting up Breach, you know, whatever. There's a million ways to do it. Exactly. And, you know, you're talking about uh, Thoracius kind of from... I don't even know how to say this. Like... From the evolution standpoint, right? Like, you basically always make infinite mana. From the high tide standpoint, you're always making, like, large amounts of mana and then sinking that into Thrasios. I play a little bit of Thrasios Tabesh, right? Which I think is, like, a good staircase. Like, that one's basically almost entirely mid-range. Sometimes you use them as a polymorph thing, but a lot of the time your deck is just full of interaction and you are just trying to interact with stuff and then activate Thrasios a few times and activate Tabesh a few times and then eventually win with backup. That deck I found, I, I think at this point, is not really playable at all. Like, I don't know if there's any Thrasios Tabesh fans out there, but, like, I, I was really excited about the deck. I put a lot of, like, time reps into it, and I think, overall, I think it's just a lot more underpowered than some of these Crown setups when you're talking about mid-range decks now. Even if you're going to do a Polymorph thing, I don't even think it's the best thing to be doing. Like, I would still rather do... I would rather Polymorph with, like, Krom, uh Tavesh. And, like, you don't even have all the polymorphs or whatever. But like, that's still where I'd want to be because I just want the card advantage to be passive. I, I want those kinds of, you know, card advantage engines that I sink my mana into once. And that's really where we're getting at. Like, if you think about to get two cards off Thrasios, right, you have to sink eight mana in. Whereas Krom is five mana. You're already doing better if you get two cards off Krom. Now, I know you get more than two cards on average. But if you get two cards... Off Krom, you're already doing better than Thrasius on mana rate. You have yeah, less control what, over it, but you, you're doing better on cards. Like you are mana that's for cards. Kind of what happens, right? Because like every like you say, you do a turn on Thrasius versus a turn one Krom. Mm -hmm. A turn one Krom is probably going to draw you at least one card that initial turn cycle. Then the second turn cycle, it's probably going to draw you two or three as people start to cast spells. And if they don't want to cast spells, you're already ahead because you got a four four beater. Thrasius, you cast a turn one. If you somehow had six mana turn one, you probably already won that game. Let's be real. But you're not casting Thrasses and activating it before you untap. The fact that Krom is getting you those cards before you untap is huge. And something I think we're going to touch on a little bit more, which is another reason why I think Thrasses has kind of fallen out of favor, is um, for one, you have to keep pumping resources into him. And two, people get knowledge of your hand. And people don't realize, like, Git Probe was just pay two life draw a card. I don't think it would have been banned in all the formats that it is. I think the fact that you get to see people's hands is huge. And when you're able to basically kind of bully the Thrasios player because it's like they keep activating it over and over again, they're revealing what they're putting, you know what to play around. You can force them to interact. Like when we talked in like our sandbagging episode, the Thrasios player that you know has two, three pieces of interaction here keeps passing. I'm just going to pass priority and lose the game because I'm not just going to let you sit there with all the stuff. And if you're lower in priority, People just keep passing you because they know you have the answer. And it just puts you in this weird bind where, or like, I'm fine with losing those games where I know someone's just sandbagging. Like, I will pass priority and just die. I'm fine with that. But when it's known information and not even speculation, like, it, we know that you have a Fluster Storm in hand for SEO's player. You're going to cast it? You're not? Okay. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good point. And uh, honestly, it brings up a really good point because you referenced like a, a pay to life draw card when Gitaxian Pro was really kind of seeing its huge rise because the card it, it's kind of hard to think about now. But I mean, I played a lot of Magic pre Gitaxian Pro's banning in both Modern and Legacy, um, and of course, it got banned in Legacy first. And a lot of times, the card was generically accepted as powerful. But it wasn't like, we're not talking like over the top. Like when people talked about over the top stuff, they were always even referring to like things like Treasure Cruise, Mental Misstep, like just some real egregious stuff. But like Probe wasn't held to that high pedigree like these other cards were. And a big argument that uh, at least came around in my local uh, discussions, if not, you know, at a wider scale, when talking about like, okay, well, let's talk about the effect of the card. Well, Street Wraith isn't a card that's bannable. Like that card's played in some places or whatever, sure, but it's not in every deck. Like, clearly the deck size argument per life and cantripping doesn't matter that much, right? Otherwise, you know, you'd see every modern deck have four copies of Street Wraith. You'd have every Legacy deck have four copies of Street Wraith. You, you just, you don't see that. So, well, why not? You know, it's, well, the answer is that, you know, pay to life draw card isn't, like, that good. It, like, it makes your mulligans harder to assess. Like, if your hand is just four Street Wraiths, four Kataxi Probes as an opening or I'm sorry, four series, three taxing probes is an opening seven. You have no idea what these cards are. Like you're keeping this hand that makes you lose 10 life and then you draw or 14 life, whatever. And you draw a whole new hand. Like it makes mulligans harder because you, you don't know what that card is. It's a question mark. It's not an actual card. So it makes evaluating your mulligans harder. It makes, you know, even though it artificially reduces quote unquote, the size of your deck, like there's only a certain critical mass of that kind of stuff you can have. That's just air before you aren't able to make informed decisions, your deck doesn't function as well, you don't have a critical mass of cards that matter for your stuff, etc. So you're right, the information is what puts Probe over the edge. Like the two life draw card, powerful, you know, makes it have a low cost. But the information matters a ton, and especially in CDH, where like usually there's one player that you're worried about having interaction. If you're, you know, if your head's in it, I don't want to say you're good at magic, but it is something that good players are going to do more often. If you're tracking who you think has is most likely to have interaction, Probe gets even more potent because you're not just firing off really nilly at some random. You know, you're not firing off the non-blue player or something, but like still, like even if there's multiple blue players, like there's going to be somebody that's posturing in a certain way that you think is more likely to have interaction and you just get to find out right away. That matters. So like Thrasios being able to activate and, you know, reveal stuff is good, but if that's your entire mid-range plan then and it gets revealed every time you hit some interaction, then people are just going to priority bully you. And they should. Like, we had a whole episode about how that kind of sucks to do at length. But if there's, like, face-up information on the table that everybody knows, like, people are going to make you spend it. And you should spend it. Like, there's no sense spite, like, whatever, just being like, I'm not going to cast my spells because you're bullying me. Like, okay, well, it's a little nonsense if you've revealed it to the table. You're getting ahead with Thrasios the entire time. Like, they're just they're just playing well. So play card advantage engines that don't reveal your hand. <laughs> you know? That's, that's, I think that's a good so point. We have so many of them now. It's like we have Esper Sentinel. We have Ledger Shredder. We have Krom. Mm -hmm. We have Rissic Study. We have Remora. Um, there's just so many things. Like, I even kind of put special Facebreaker in that category. Like, yes, it reveals it, but it's revealing it when you want to which is way different than just giving away known information, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's a treasure most of the time. And then people don't even know if that represents mana or a card, which is, like, powerful. That's interesting. It's like, okay, are they going to use this for mana? Or is are they saving this for a card? Like, I don't actually know. And I'm going to have to use a lot of context to try to figure out what the most likely use for that specific treasure is. Mm -hmm. So, either way, these are, you know, just kind of examples of 
strict card advantage. But now I kind of want to, I want to dumb down the power level more because I don't think we're saying anything revolutionary by telling people that Mr. Grimar and Ristic Study are good in CDH at this point. Like maybe 60 card players are going to be like, whoa, really? Like they're that good? Yeah. Okay. They're that good. But anybody that's been playing CDH for a long time, like, or even like recently got into it and has played against a Ristic Study once, they get the joke. Ristic Study messed up. Mr. Grimara even more messed up. These cards are just unreasonable. Well, it where's the line, you know? And I think that's where we could really bring Ledger Shredder into the equation because I think this is a really, really interesting card to examine uh, and use to kind of talk about our point. And that's that's why we keep touching on it over and over again is it's not strict card advantage, right? Like you're only getting a loot. You're you're mm-hmm. getting selection, but you are not getting card advantage. Um, and I think that's... That's really interesting because this is the first example of one of these cards, at least it's been printed a long time. Mystical Moore, I think, saw some vintage play years and years ago. But like Ristic Study is held as completely unplayable in 60 card formats. Well, Ledger Shredder is actively like very good in 60 card formats. And I think it's kind of taken the the 1v1 60 card, um, I guess, player community kind of by surprise. And it, it didn't really take any of the CEDH community by surprise. People, A lot of CEDH people saw this card and was like, this card is messed up. And I was certainly part of the demographic. I was like, I mean, it looks like it could be powerful, but like the reason Krom is as dominant and as good as it is is you have access to it every game. It's out of your command zone. Like this thing that just like will sometimes work. Like what if you draw it late when people are out of resources and all that kind of stuff? Like I had a lot of games in my head that were playing out where this card was like got two or three loots and like, you know, maybe you're looting away lands or whatever. And it's just like not that good, but that's just not how it plays out at all. That's not how it's playing out in 60 card formats. And I think this card, people thought it was going to be good, but everyone that wasn't basically saying this card is like really messed up and is going to be a staple is just like wrong about how good the card is. Right. Those were a lot of conversations I had because I saw it right away. It was like cracked going in all my blues. No question. And you're just a genius. Got like a little bit of pushback at first. As like you mentioned, like people were like, yeah, it's like fine. But it's not like that good. And the thing that I think is hilarious, once people realize it triggers on your own turn, that's what, like, was the game breaker. Because I was like, yo, like, you're able to trigger this on your own turn. All your top deck tutors are now to hand tutors, essentially. Because it's not hard to cast a vamp or an imp seal and then cast another spell. Right? Like, these are yeah. all things that just make the card cracked. And I was just like, how are people not seeing this? And it didn't take that long for people to get the joke of why this card is insane. But it was funny to me. Like, as soon as the card was leaked, I was telling everyone, snapped, put it on all your lists. A question a few days later they're like wait this triggers on your turn i was like yeah that's why i was saying this is so busted and on top of it just being really good and t- on top of that and as you mentioned yes it's card selection not card advantage so you do need a discard but my point to that is who cares like even if you are at a point where you only have one card in hand and you need to discard discard one your card quality is so high that trigger on everyone's turn, by the time it gets back to you, that one card that's in your hand that you have personally selected after seeing another three cards, say, like we'll, we'll talk about at the ceiling, that's an awesome place to be in. Maybe that got you your instant speed tutor. Maybe that got you your Nas. Maybe that got you your Breach. Maybe that got you just a wheel. Something that got you back in the game. The fact that you're able to select that card is just ridiculous. Like, we're playing with the most powerful cards. Being is still very, very valuable, even if it's not strict card advantage. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of talk, I think, in, like, the the math gurus or whatever of the 60-card formats about, like, what represents a card. 
like obviously if you draw a card right like that's the most pure form but like there's a lot of talk about okay how many scries is worth a card and i think it was like somewhere around two like a scry two is about the same as drawing a card as far as like you know power level and you know getting an advantage or whatever and loots are part of the equation as well how many times can you draw a discard before it's like okay well this was worth more than drawing a card and you know i think obviously ledger shredder triggers so many times that like it gets definitely within that range of that conversation but even going beyond that i think it's really interesting to see as a side note the difference between 1v1 formats where i think the power toughness increase is like a little more relevant because the card's treated as like an actual threat, right? Like it's used as an actual, like, okay, this is how I'm ending the game out, out of these, is it tempo decks that are being played in different formats? Whereas like in CDH, it's like, okay, the power toughness matters because obviously having that huge, huge butt is really good at blocking things like Krom and just ruling in combat and getting attacks in with Timna. So it's certainly not irrelevant, but it's a lot less relevant than the, uh, you know, second spell loot text, which scales so much better because it's passive card selection in CDH. So, like, the card's really good, and I think it's really good not just because it's passive card selection, but it, like, passively gets bigger. Not only are you getting card selection, but not only do you have this thing in play that, like, is a relevant game object, you know, it flies, so it has evasion for Tim and all that stuff, but it's also improving your board state every time it triggers, because it gets bigger. So you're improving on board, you're improving your hand, and all at the cost of, like, a two-mana blue card that can be pitched to force or whatever. Like, this card is, I think, at this point, fairly undeniably extremely powerful in every format. Every format across the board. Multiplayer, single player, it doesn't actually matter. The card is just good enough on rate across the board. And to me, that's really, really interesting because this is one that I got hilariously wrong. Like, I came in and I was like, I don't think this card's playable in CDH. I literally said that. I was like, I think this card is uh, appealing because it looks like a Krom, and Krom's as good as it is. But it's nowhere near as powerful as Krom, which is true. I do think it's a lot less powerful than Krom, which should tell you my opinion of Krom, I guess. The guy Krom's messed up. But I saw this card. I was like, nowhere near as powerful as Krom. You don't have access to it every game. Just throw it in your 99. Seems goofy. Like, whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm just wrong. Like, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I get things wrong, too. I'm a human. I was wrong. This card's messed up. Please put this card in your deck. If you, Especially if you're playing, like, a mid-rangey style setup. If you're playing a Timnus setup at all. Like, you should grab this card years centuries eons before you reach for a thing like a loyal apprentice or a sarah ascendant or any of these cards that like only do the beat down board state matters thing because this card does it all it does the hand matters thing it does the board state matters thing and it's in better colors like it's just so it's so good and i think it's better than some like whatever if you want to talk about like lining a card up versus another card like i think it's probably better than like Esper Sentinel like you know like that's what I'm saying is like I think it even is so powerful at what it does because you can trigger it yourself like you kept talking about like the fact that not only can players like try to play around it quote unquote by not casting your spells but like if you want it to get bigger and you want to trigger the loot you can just cast two spells which you want to do anyway like you you want to use your mana and double spell anyway so you know you can you can use it and as a result I think the card ends up being more powerful than some of the like other passive strict card advantage effects and that to me is really striking yeah, no, I agree. Like, we're, we're both on the same page with this. Uh, like, I just, caught up it's to just you. ridiculous. We're on the same page now. Finally, finally caught up to your aggressive shilling for Ledger Shredder. All right, I'm with it. I'm with it. I get it. Card's messed up. Yeah, well, well, eventually we'll get you on the lane counts too, but, you know, I'll give that more time. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm holding out. 
This is where this is where we hold them. <laughs> Land cats gotta stay high. I got I gotta win somewhere. I'm taking a lot of L's. I gotta have a W somewhere. Actually, speaking of, let's talk about not only does it apply to card advantage, which has been the primary source of discussion here. Not only does it apply to card selection, which I think is secondary, but definitely in the same vein. But if you pivot entirely to cards that passively uh, accumulate other resources, not just, you know, uh, cards, which is the most easy examples to use because it's the most objectively powerful thing, I think, in Magic, is, outside of just killing your opponent, of course, is, like, your mana acceleration, right? So, like, we have a couple examples that I think that trigger, like, you invest once and then they make mana. And I think I want to talk about those a little bit. So we talked about why Prophet of Crufix. I guess we haven't talked about this, but like if you look at why Prophet of Crufix is banned in EDH at large, I don't think it's oppressive in CDH or anything. It was probably like playable in some fringe places, but like it was oppressive in casual because it does exactly what we're talking about. You invest once and it makes mana every single turn. Well, there was a little bit of setups that were Thrasios based that in order to, and I think this is, emblematic of what was going on whether or not people could put a name to it because thrasios wasn't making it wasn't doing enough on its own it wasn't getting enough cards on its own to get you dramatically ahead and you needed to play cards to make it better you reach for things like seedborn use right now cards five mana it's a lot of mana you get your mana back immediately if you if it's all in lands and i think you, what does it untap artifacts to whatever it makes me and this is what actually, like, this was the powerful interaction that sold people on Thrasios. You invest your mana into Seedborn Muse, and then, finally, your Thrasios becomes somewhat passive, because you can activate it every turn at the minimum. It still doesn't have the same ceiling, something like Krom does, because if you talk about the ceiling of Krom, it could draw three cards per turn, because people could cast two spells, theoretically, per turn. That doesn't obviously happen, but... You know, you if there are times where you draw more than one card on a player's turn. So I think, you know, it's obviously somewhere in the middle is where you land. Whereas the ceiling usually with Seaboard Muse is you draw like one or two cards per player's turn. But that was powerful enough, I think, to push Thrasios over the edge. And since we've seen a decline of Thrasios, we see a decline of cards like Seaboard Muse. Because as much as getting mana is nice, you still need somewhere to park that mana, right? You still need to have what I'm going to call bad, they're not actually bad, but they're worse cards in your deck to sink your mana into in order to convert that mana into something more than just, you know, holding up interaction, which you can do already by just accelerating your mana. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. You're an idiot, Drake. Where, where I'm going with this is I think a card like Smothering Tithe is a card I've been a big proponent for in blue farm and it gets i think a lot of hate because it kind of has the seedborn muse problem right where you're playing this card that does accumulate advantage passively it is mana advantage and you know it's once again another card that gets seen as fairly oppressive in casual settings and all this stuff but you there's like this impression that you need to have somewhere to sink the mana in order to, like, really be leveraging this card. Like, you have no Thrasios to park these treasures into. You have no, you know, other advantage to to get from this card outside of, you know, just, like, getting mana. Like, what are you going to do? Spend it on Krom and Timna? Okay, now what? You know? But for me, 
Smothering Tithe has a couple things that I want to talk about that I think make it actively playable, and then you can argue with me because I know you're going to, over things like something like Seedborn Muse. So Smothering Tithe has a higher ceiling, right? Like it's not just a once per turn thing. We're talking about, you know, there's no ceiling on it. Like it does actively do some amount of work to mitigate the powerful cards we just talked about. It does some work to mitigate Ledger Shredder, which isn't an optional draw discard. It does some amount of work to mitigate Krom, which isn't an optional draw uh, and does some amount of work to mitigate things like Mystic Remora and Ristic Study. So where the players that have these cards are getting less ahead because you are getting a mana each time they get a card. It's not the same. Like, getting a mana is not the same as getting a card, obviously. But you're furthering your resources as they are instead of it being one-sided. I think that's big. Two, the card is cheaper. You know, it's easier to cast off just, like, colorless mana which there's a lot of in CDH. I don't know if you've heard of these Mana Vault, Mana Crypt, uh, you know, Soul Ring cards. They're pretty good. It's easier to cast. And, you know, this card can do basically almost entirely pay for itself immediately. Like, it, players don't pay for it. They don't pay for Ristics. They sure as heck aren't paying double for Smothering Tithes, which, you know, leaves you with three treasures at the end of the turn cycle. So it almost entirely pays for itself after one, and that's without any other considerations for things like these passive card advantage sources, wheels, anything like that. And as a result, the card's kind of overperformed for me. And, oh, the last point I want to make about it versus Seedborn Muse is you're actually breaking your ceiling on your mana. So, like, if you talk about Seedborn Muse, you, you only get access to the mana that you already have access to. You just get access to it multiple times, which is good. It's powerful, don't get me wrong. But Smothering Tide pushes the limit. Like, you are actually making more mana than you would have access to if you just got an untapped step. So you can set up things like a peer into, Tutor for Peer into the Abyss with backup turn because you have more mana than you would otherwise have access to. And all of these things as a result, I think Smothering Tide is underplayed, and I think despite it only accumulating mana, not cards, it does kind of represent this active versus passive advantage thing where I think it's comparable to things that make mana. So we're talking about talismans. Like, you could just play another talisman. I think you could consider playing something like a Smothering Tithe because you invested two mana to get one additional mana every single turn, where Smothering Tithe has the ceiling to make more mana than that, but at a more expensive price. And then you talk about rituals. Like, these are the different things that make mana. Rituals make mana once, you have acceleration like talismans, and then you have something like Smothering Tithe, which makes, you know, kind of temporary mana, but you can bank it. You can keep it around. And I think when we're talking about, like, you can kind of draw some real conclusions with, like, ponders compared to talismans as, you know, croms are to things like Smothering Tithe, right? Obviously, the power level differential is higher, and there's a lot more variables going on. But I think Smothering Tithe gets a lot of hate because it's misunderstood. All right. Roast me. What you got? Okay, so I will say, in general, I'm a lot lower on Seaborn Muse than I am on Smothering Tithe. And going back to something I was talking about earlier, Seaborn Muse is best with Brassius. I don't think anyone will argue with that with me. Like, obviously, untapping all your lands does have its benefits, but it, you, where you really get to capitalize on is with Brassius. And my issue is that giving people that much information on your hand is just so detrimental they know when you're sandbagging. They know when they can just pass priority to you. They know when you're a threat. And they know when you're just hitting, like, nonsense that doesn't help you win the game. So because there's plenty of times where you have 10 cards in your hand and, you know, you literally just don't get you there. But the biggest issue with both of these cards in general is just they are such a big mana investment up front and they don't immediately impact the board or immediately win you the game. And 
I know this might sound kind of hypocritical because I am a big proponent of Warning Arcade, but I love Warning Arcade because it's five colorless mana, so easier than both of them to cast. Also, as soon as it hits the board, it has an impact because now you have protection on your turn and also it's reactive because now it makes it harder for other people to win. Now, someone tries to cast a big spell, you counter it. They have a counter spell in hand. They got to pay at least two mana or three mana. You know, obviously, if they have a free counter, then it's two. If they have a one CMC spell, it's three. Regardless, like that has an immediate impact as soon as you cast it. It progresses your own game plan while pushing other people back. And I don't feel like Seaborn Muse or Smothering Tithe really do those two things. And that's why I kind of value this one more. And then going back to my other point where these are just big mana investments, this is something that I talk about with our friend Eric a lot who plays in our playgroup quite regularly. It's just such a blowout when something like that gets countered or like on your end step before you get your first untapped Seaborn Muse gets removed. And I know you can say a similar thing with Nas, but I don't think that's a relevant comparison since Nas is an instant. So you're able to pick your moment when you cast it. You can wait until other people blow interaction. You can wait until people are tapped out, drop it on the board. Smothering Titan Seaborn Muse, you don't really have that luxury because people can either remove it or counter it. And you're just a sitting duck on your main phase and you're going into your, tu- going into someone else's turn out without much interaction up. I think that is just such a big detriment in this format where it's become fast. Like I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, it's a turn two format. But in my opinion, it's a turn three, turn four format, no matter which way you dice it, unless you're playing in like a particularly slow meta for some reason. But in general, any deck that's built at this point is aiming to win by the latest turn four, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And you can roast me in the comments for that because you're a huge stack proponent, but a stacks proponent. But this is also why I don't think stacks is very good because I just feel like even these <laughs> quote unquote mid range decks are still winning turn three, turn four. Um, this is such a big mana investment. And that oh, it is just huge. As someone who's played a lot of Smothering Tithe, because I used to do this um, evolution build where it was like Polymorph for like kind of value, where Whole Breacher was a thing, and the whole thing, the whole joke of the deck was I have a Whole Breacher turn two every time. Even there, like if I did a turn one Smothering Tithe and that got counter, I'm just like, well, I'm out of this game. GG, no re. Um, and I also just don't think the mana that Smothering Tithe gives you is as valuable as cards. So I do realize like getting more mana is obviously good. It's just as someone who runs very few lands in their deck, I'm never struggling with mana. Like, obviously, there's going to be a game here and there where I just get mana screwed, but that just happens with any deck. It doesn't even matter if you're running 50 lands. You're going to get mana screwed one game or another. That's just the luck of the draw. Just putting this much mana into a spell at sorcery speed is what's really backbreaking for me, especially because they don't just win. Like, Peta, I get it. You drop seven mana into it, and if that resolves, you win. But just because a Seaborn hits the table or a Smothering Tithe hits the table, you're not winning that turn. And that's just such a deal breaker for me with how things are going right now. Okay. Well, before we move on with all this, how do you reconcile that argument with something like Chrome? Because I, I do like the Wandering Archaic comparison. That card offers a whole different dynamic to the game where people probably aren't going to pay for it and it makes all their spells cost more and sometimes people don't pay for interaction and stuff. It, like, it has a very interesting impact on the game. And I do agree with you. I think that card's really good as well. I'm high on Wandering Archaic for a lot of reasons. But... Even Wandering Archaic has more potential to have an immediate impact on the board, even with like it getting bounced or killed or whatever, because maybe you get a bounce spell or a kill spell out of it, than something like Chrom, where a lot of times if you play a Chrom and it gets killed, like you didn't get advantage out of that. Somebody probably didn't play two spells that turn and they just killed it on your instep. And a lot of times you've told me where like you're playing things like Chrom Armix and people just counter your Chrom, you kind of feel the same way where you're just dead. Now I get it, Chrom, once again, a lot more powerful, card advantage better, blah, blah, blah. The the typical stuff where Chrom's a better card. But if your argument is that 
it getting countered because you had to tap out for it on your main phase or whatever is so backbreaking. How does that make Krom, how do you reconcile Krom suffering that same effect as, and, and then Smothering Tide is just not playable there? That's a reasonable point, and I have two things for that. One, people are dumb and they don't red blast Kroms enough. So <laughs> it doesn't okay. happen that often. You can't even red blast the Smothering Tide. <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm, I'm getting to the other point. But like, okay, 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 okay. My first point is I'm going to blame other players for not doing it enough. The one sure. person who's caught on to this joke I feel that I play with regularly is Zane. Like, he knows I'm on Armor's Crom. He knows I need cards in hand to, like, kill his Malcolm over and over again. So just kill my Crom. Like, I'm... What do you want from me? Like, I can't control the board with Armix if I'm not drawing cards. Uh, secondly, um, even though he doesn't give you immediate advantage, by the time it gets back to your turn, you've already drawn cards. So, like, a turn one Krom is way more powerful than a turn one, like, Seaborn Muse, right? And I already went over this. If you have yeah. enough mana to do a turn one Thrasios to a turn one Seaborn Muse, you probably won that game. Sure, I don't know yeah. how you are able to You could win with a ham sandwich with that much mana on turn one. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah, exactly. If you were able to play that with your, your first seven, second seven, six, whatever, yeah, you... <laughs> I'm probably not even... I probably already zoned out of that game. Like, right, we're, okay, we're, we're dead. dead. Can we shuffle up, or where are we at? <laughs> then, my comparison to Smothering Tithe, I do think a turn one Smothering Tithe can be pretty powerful. It's just, one, I always have access to Krom, so I don't need a mulligan for it. All I need a mulligan for is mana, which is already just net good for my long-term plan. Even if Krom gets countered, like, I'm not just completely dead in the water. Like, I kind of exaggerate a little bit. It's more of, I like to control the board with Armix, and if Krom's dead, I'm not able to do that as effectively. Mm-hmm. Also, I just viewed the cards from a turn one Chrome way more impactful than three treasures turn one. Because everyone's turn one, for the most part, it's like you know, rock, rock, like land, rock, tutor, something. Like most people are casting two spells on their turn one. Like obviously there's exceptions to this, but by the time, if I do a turn one Chrome and I'm on the play, I'd rather have three cards in hand than three treasures. So I do agree that's a weak, weak point of my argument. And it might just be also partially I don't play white anymore, so I just don't value it as much. It's just I'd much rather have a turn one Krom than a turn one Smothering Tithe in any game. So if I have Krom in the command zone, I'm running Tithe. Why am I not just casting my Krom? Because that mana doesn't do anything unless I have cards in hand. I think I'm going to take a stab, and forgive me if I miss completely here, but I think I'm going to take a stab at simplifying your argument into a better package. The reason why, in your experience, I think, that it has felt that turn one Smothering Tithe is the example you keep going to, right? Turn one Smothering Tithe is worse than turn one Krom. Has to do with the... I mean, obviously they do different things, but the resource they're accumulating, when you're already paying four mana for Smothering Tithe, you already have access to four mana, which is kind of a lot in CDH. And Smothering Tithe is a card you put into play, and it just does more of the same. It makes mana. Whereas Krom, if you already have access to five mana, then you already have the mana check mark. You have a lot of mana. Now you need things to do with it. And Krom provides cards... Whereas, obviously, Smothering Tide doesn't do that. It just makes more mana, which you already have. Yeah, that's accurate. And this is the same reason why I've been so low on Training Grounds for a long time. Even when I played Eva, I wasn't on Training Grounds. So I felt Training Grounds was kind of just more of this win-more card. Like, you don't want to see it early. Because if you're seeing it early, once again, if you're able to have the turn where it's turn one t- Training Grounds, turn one Thrasios, like, cool. Like, live that dream. But, like... That's very pip intensive, and that's a lot harder to do than like a turn one Nas, even in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and later in the game, if you have say twelve mana, yes, training grounds is amazing. You're drawing six cards potentially every turn cycle. Mm-hmm. But if you have twelve mana and you're not already winning, what, like what, what are is you your doing? Deck doing? Yeah, like what? What? Why are you playing this deck? No, I think yeah, you have twelve point. mana and a Thrasios. Those three cards with filtering, you know, 
scrying one of the bottom should already be winning you the game. So like training grounds to me is a similar thing where with smothering type, as you mentioned, it's just like feels like win more. If you get it out, like either or already ahead, or you just had the nutso hand and you were winning anyway. Like it, I don't really see a world where it's just like a good value piece. Okay. I think I, I mean I admit I may have walked you into something a little bit here, but my counter argument to this is that I think when you're assessing a mid-range deck like Blue Farm, a lot of your cards, like you're talking about how much you already have a lot of mana, you should be doing something impractical that wins the game. But the approach with Timnacrom, where you have so much card advantage out of the command zone, means that you are actually taxed on mana more than normal, especially even having access to four mana already, is not actually that much for Blue Farm. Because my average casting cost is actually a lot higher. Like I am playing a lot more cards that have a much more... Um, like fair one-for-one -one based impact on the game. Things like Notion Thief that I'm just going to put in play and have sit there. Things like, you know, Sweepers and stuff like that. Think I have expensive cards in my deck that don't play as well of like a turbo plan. They're there to play a more of a mid-range approach that costs a lot of mana. So having four mana is not actually a lot. You do actually want more in a setup like Blue Farm. And you're interested in playing more turns because you're interested in stopping players a lot. You're interested in trying to accumulate more card advantage by having more turn cycles with things like Timna and Krom. And so as a result, Smothering Tithe is in play. You're planning to play more turns. So Smothering Tithe is going to exist in play longer, even if you're getting ahead and you're winning the game. The, the composition of your deck leans in such a way that you'd be playing more turns no matter what, even if it leads to you having a victory. And that makes Smothering Tithe have a higher stock than it would in a deck that has the potential to combo off a little bit faster. So, my issue with that is just, so if you're committing the mana to Smothering Tithe, right? Mm -hmm. If that gets countered, you no longer have access to any of the interaction in your hand. I almost think this might be just a playstyle difference. This is something where Eric and I align. I think it's more impactful if I, say, have four cards in hand. I just pass with open mana. I think that's more impactful than if I had cast a Smothering Tithe that might get countered. Because that Smothering Tithe gets countered, now it doesn't matter my entire hand interaction that costs mana. I'm still dead that game. So, you don't want to tap out for it, right? Like, you would want to have interaction up to stop people from interacting with it to begin with, right? Like, so you would want to well, hold yeah, it until then, you have five, which you want to get to anyway because you want to cast Krom. Hell, you might even cast Krom first. Yeah, but then, like, that still falls into, like, the thing. So now you're casting Smothering Tithe, like, turn three. Like, it, right. That, is that really where you want to be? We're trying to win the game turn three, turn four. Are you? So, not every game with Blue Farm, right? Like the way the games play out, if you're trying to set up for more mid-range things, sometimes you are. And I think it is very bad there, I agree. But there are numerous games where you yourself are the player that's slowing the game down by countering other people's stuff and holding up this interaction that you're talking about and then recovering your cards with Krom and Temna. Well, it's also nice to accumulate the mana spike to cast the cards that you're getting off Krom Timna after interacting a bunch, right? Yeah, like I, I think it just comes down to play style difference. Like I said, I'm much sure. lower on like Seaborn Muse. Like I think Seaborn Muse is just laughable at this I point. I agree. Honestly. I think that card's a lot worse. And I think that's the point we we're like, kind of getting at. But still, yeah, and like <laughs> Smothering Tithe, I do think there's an argument for. Just, this is a difference in like your and I's play style. And like I said, like Eric and I align more closely together, where it's just like I'm not tapping out for this much mana sorcery speed. Because as you mentioned too, like Notion Thief does cost a lot of mana, but it also has flash. So mm -hmm. I'd much rather leave that mana open, hold that in hand. And then if a wheel happens or someone, you know, casts a brainstorm, insert whatever, I'll flash it in. Or I just wait until the end step before I untap and I flash it in. I'd much rather leave that mana up feigning interaction than putting it into a smothering type that might get countered. 
I'm not saying I'm correct or you're correct or you're incorrect. It's just that's the play style difference. And that's why I don't like the card on top of the other reasons that I've mentioned. It's just instant speed versus tapping out that much more sorcery speed is just such a big difference. Oh, I agree. I, I think generally, I mean, this is the kind of conversation we've had before in Discord. Field Lord makes Chrom just so much easier. That's true, too. You do have a Lotus to cast Chrom and stuff like that. I, again, I do think Chrom obviously is better than Smothering Tithe. I don't think Smothering Tithe is like over the top busted or whatever, but the card is overperformed for me. And I, I wanted to have the conversation that I think we've had in Discord channels and stuff on the podcast so that, of course, our listeners can kind of draw their own conclusions. And I think most players are going to side with you. I think a lot of players are really low on Smothering Tithe. But every time I've cast it, one, like you said, it resolves more often. Like you always talk about this huge downside of getting countered, but the card just resolves all the time because people, I think because they have the same approach as you where they're like, Oh, that card's not as good as like a Krom or a Ristic study. I don't need to counter that. And they just don't. So like a lot of times people yeah, don't like, counter I'm, it. I'm willing to be wrong here. Cause like Alex, another person I would play with regularly, he's also a big smothering tight fanatic fanatic and he plays it in his Kenrith deck. Yeah. I've been telling him to cut it. Since well, he, he has an outlet deck. there, right? Kenrith is a, is a mana outlet, so it looks even better there on paper than it does even in Blue Farm. And even there, I've been telling him to cut it since day one. He He's refused to cut it and keeps trying to tell me that it's good. I think it's good! I mean, <laughs> you, you know how I am. Like, I, I stand my ground and like, it takes and a both, lot to man. convince me. Like, I could be wrong. I'm not saying I'm correct, but these are the reasons why I just don't like the card. And I, I, Granted, when am I ever going to play it when I'm just on my Grixis train? Yeah, you're just Grixis for life anyways. It's not like it ever matters. I don't even need to think about that part. I just get to tell people, like, I disagree with this, given my reasons. Like, well, it's played really well. I was like, sure. You just get to berate me when I put it on the stack and get countered, and I just get to look like a clown. You're like, Drake, this is why you're the biggest idiot I've ever seen in my life. And I, I just can't wait for those moments. It's going to be really special. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> All right, well, let's bring this whole podcast home. What are we talking about here? What's the point? Like, a lot of people know that Ristic Studies are good. Mystic Remorse are good. Okay, fine. Smothering Tithe might be good. Muse, probably not as good anymore. Where are we going with all this? The point is, and this is the point... This is just the <laughs> passive card advantage that you get from things like Chrom, Ledger Shredder, etc., all the other cards that we mentioned. It's just more impactful, and it's kind of led to this decline in Thrasios being the go-back-to commander. Because if you look at the format, even just, like, two, three years ago, Thrasios Timnut was... The deck. deck. Like, yeah, that was the deck. There I was, was a million yeah. variants of it. I'm not going to try to sit here and claim which one is the best, but there's like a million var- variants of Thrasios Timna. There's still a million variants of it to this day. Like there's Razakat, CST, blah, blah, blah. Not important. But Thrasios was viewed as the best card advantage in Commander. Now things have sped up a lot, and mm-hmm. a lot of this has to do with the unbanning of Flash. But now Krom is just reigning supreme. The fact that you cast it, you put your five mana into it, tapped out turn one or turn two. You're dr- by the time it gets back to your turn, you've replaced two, three cards. Thrasios does not have that potential. Yep. And like like I said, I think this aggregates into a point we made earlier too, where the value of mana is so different in 60 card formats versus these 99 card formats. And that is why it has been something that, I mean, across all the podcasts, even across like when we first met, like I had some really, really, uh, at this point, they seem kind of wild opinions about what cards should be played more, what cards should be played less. And have, you know, made some very bad deck edits across time that I thought made sense because of, you know, the experience I had being very, very lopsided towards 60 card formats and cube setups and all this kind of stuff uh, across time. And that's just the value of mana is different in CEDH. No matter which way you try to argue by how much and all this kind of stuff, it doesn't really matter. The fact is it's different and it has a very heavy impact on card evaluation. Like, I just cut Ponder from Blue Farm, like I referenced earlier on, because my conclusion was that holding up the mana for interaction was more important than casting a Ponder because you just want to live 
to cast your better card advantage engines down the line. You don't care about trying to ponder to hit your land drops and all that kind of stuff. Another good anecdote there is um, somebody went to Birmingham to visit you, and I played with your friend Mitch, who's also a big uh, 60 card player. Mm-hmm. I sat down with Evolution back when I was on that deck, and he just picked up Thrasios and was like, what the fuck, this raid is terrible. And I was like, no, that's like one of the best draw engines in the game. That just shows how much my opinions change, right? Like, I, yeah. when's the last time you see me play a Thrasios deck? <laughs> yeah, you're just you're off it now entirely. You're full Grixis gang for life these days, and I think that's a I think that's a shift. I think that's a development. I think that's you learning about the format. Like, it's not just like a oh, I just don't feel like it right now or all this kind of stuff. Like, I think you switch decks because you noticed those decks weren't as good as these other decks, and you should be putting your time more into these other decks. And I, I think that's a subconscious thing of you realizing that these cards are lower or this deck is a lower power level and transitioning into playing higher power level cards for the strategies you're trying to play. And I can't give Ian the satisfaction of me playing Don Waker. That just won't no, ever happen. Absolutely. Can't happen. No, can't. Yeah, can't yield that. It's <laughs> like I'm still in 28 on Blue Farm. I, I ain't cutting to 27. I don't know what kind of man you take me as, but you will never see 27 lands in that deck list. My pride can't take that. Yeah, so mm-hmm, in conclusion. Exactly. Uh, because your mana is you know, worth a different amount. What matters a lot more is what you're doing passively on each turn because you get so few turns to your opponent's turns. You want to invest your mana and get the highest yield out of your mana across the entire game. And so as a result, the cards that do that are oftentimes permanents that sit in play and accumulate an advantage of some kind. We see like stacks permanents being a little bit better than they are in other formats. We see obviously Ristic Study cards like that. Those are some of the most prominent examples. You just want your cards to be doing something every turn, even if they have a low floor, like whatever. You played a Mystic Remora and everyone just plays creatures or whatever. Like that doesn't make Mystic Remora a bad card. It didn't pan out necessarily the way you wanted it to, but Mystic Remora is, you know, I think objectively one of the most obviously powerful cards in the format. And it has a low floor. But it doesn't matter because that is such a high ceiling. And, you know, you want those kinds of cards. And it feels bad coming from a 60-card format perspective where a lot of times cards that have really low floors are just not good at all. Like now, these cards that have really high ceilings and low floors are actually very good. And you can use the multiplayer mulligan to supplement the some of these cards being maybe not as good in certain contexts. So, like, you know, if you're playing against all creature decks, maybe you mulligan the Mystic Remora hand, even though it feels crazy to do so. Um, and, it, you know, even things like Planeswalkers that don't have static abilities. These are cards that, you know, are really good in 60-card formats because you get to activate it, you know, once for each turn your opponent gets. Whereas you only get to activate it once for each three turns your opponent gets, unless it's specifically to fairy like, Master of Time or whatever. So, Planeswalkers basically see next to no play because they're... They just don't accumulate advantage as quickly as other cards do in this format. And I think that's one of the biggest rifts that you see between 1v1 formats and, and CDH. And certainly has been one of my biggest struggles. I mean, yeah, on that note, um, keep trying to put Planeswalkers in your decks in CDH and just like, what are you doing? And then you and I do the Qbert like 1v1 draft format and I keep passing you Planeswalkers and you're like, you're a fucking idiot. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I would say you, uh, your evaluation of Planeswalkers in a 1v1 setting uh, certainly shows your CDH experience. Because, yeah, you get bodied by Planeswalkers and then suddenly you're looking three Planeswalkers down with your zero cards in here. And you're like, I see. <laughs> I see what has happened here. <laughs> Planeswalkers are a little bit better in 1v1 contexts. Yes, Mikey? Yes, yeah, this, this is the nice... Uh... <laughs> 
economy that we have that we've talked about before. I've only played CEDH, and you play CEDH, but you are mostly a CC card player at heart, and it just kind of shows the difference in our card evaluations. I think that really shined true with our smothering type discussion as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's shined through with plenty of other discussions that we've had, even on this podcast, things like cantrips and all that kind of stuff. Just like I am much more interested in the active mana investment stuff or the once per year turn stuff. Things like, uh, I think another good example that we're not going to dive into too much is like Howling Mines, right? Dark Confidant, great example, right? You're looking at Dark Confidant like, well, that's a passive source. Well, it, it is, but because it is... Only on your turn, remember, the cards, an important part of this equation is that the cards do things on your opponent's turns, too. Because there's more of your opponent's turns than there are your turns. So, a card that draws a card for each of your opponent's turns is better than a card that only draws a card on your turn. So, Dark Confidant actually, despite being passive, loses a lot of stock compared to 60-card format where it, it has the same Planeswalker problem. Where you only get it once for each of your turn, but your opponents get three turns to your one. So, you know, you would look at Dark Confidant and say, okay, that's passive. Well, yeah, it is passive, but it's still way worse than Ledger Shredder because it doesn't do anything on your opponent's turns. It only does things for each of your turns. And like we just talked about, passive card advantage sources like Planeswalkers and Dark Confidants and, you know, whatever, Halley Mines and stuff like that are better than active a lot of the time, but they're still a lot worse than these cards that care about doing things on your opponent's turns. For sure. All right, well, I think that'll wrap it up. All right, Mikey. If people want to find you, they want to reach you, they want to talk about imminence, which is actually productive, or they just want to yell at you about how great Smothering Tithe is and how wrong you are, where can they do that? Uh, at Mikey Hallahan Twitter, the Miscast Twitter. Um, also, be sure to follow at Eminence MTG. That's the Twitter for the event group that I'm running. Feel free to, you know, any questions that you have, feel free to DM that Twitter, or you can join our Discord. All that information is on our Twitter. Um, would love to see more people come out, especially if you're fans of the show and you want to say hi to either me or Drake or both of us. I don't know. Maybe you're in the 60 card camp and you want to say hi to Drake because he's awesome at Legacy, or you just want to say <laughs> hi to me because all I do is play CEDH and I've invested way too much time to this fake format. Let me know and we'll have tokens for you. Well, it doesn't sound very fake to me if there's a tournament for it. And it, as <laughs> you know, as we mentioned, if you want to check out Mikey's tournament, of course, there will be a link in the description below wherever you are viewing this podcast to go ahead and register for that. This is while supplies last. We will both be there. So if you want to meet us, it'll be a good time to come talk to us about how, you know, how you're not sure about Smothering Tide and we can both yell at you our opinions and then you'll learn exactly nothing. But you might get a token out of the deal. So, of course, register for that. Check it out below. Eminence, of course, spelled like the uh, the ability, which I believe shows up on Inala. So... You can check that out. If you want to find me, you want to yell at me about how much Smothering Ties sucks, and I'm just a gigantic idiot, you can find me on my Twitter at viral underscore Drake. You can, of course, find it on the Miscast Twitter that will get both of us. That's at the Miscast MTG. And you can, of course, find me on Moxfield, Viral Drake. I've seen a few people follow me on Moxfield. I appreciate that. It's always cool. I have a lot of lists public and stuff like that. Feel free to show up, comment. I'll answer your questions that you have about deck lists and stuff. And you can, of course, see what I'm working on in real time. Like, you want to see my Blue Farm list. You want to see my Berkey list, my Eska list. I think all those are public on my Moxfield. So you can check out all the stuff I'm working on that I'm talking about on the cast each and every week. But beyond that, thank you for listening. Appreciate your support. See you all next week.